would love for you to take God's word and turn to Mark chapter number 9, please. Mark chapter number 9. This is where we'll pick back up this morning. Those of you visiting with us, we welcome you. We pray that God blesses in a mighty way and uses this body to uh, minister to your hearts and the word of God as well. But if you've not been with us, we've been trekking through the book of Mark just verse by verse. And, and this morning, the Lord has brought us to verse number 14. And we're going to take a reading up there and read through verse number 29. And if you're willing and able, uh, we will stand out of reverence for the Word of God as we read it. And this is the inerrant, infallible, eternal Word of God. Mark writes, according to the Holy Spirit in verse 14, When he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and the scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? And then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who, is a, who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth and ashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation. How long, shall I how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to you? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. If you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can, believe. All things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw the people, he came running to together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. And the Spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead. So the many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. And he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind can only come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We trust you. We need you. I'm reminded of uh, Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him and shall not be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Father, we're reminded that you have all power, all you deserve all honor, all glory, and all dominion this morning. And Father, while the world is falling apart seemingly at the seams, and many things are going chaotic, and there's so much disorder and disarray, and Father, in the community, and in the nation and all throughout the world, Father, um, we recognize that you are still in control, that you are sovereign over all things, and that you deserve honor and glory and dominion. And 
I pray, Father, under these, uh, in these four walls and under this roof, you find it this morning. God, I pray that you find the people that are just um, in love with you because you first loved them. Father, seeking purity and righteousness because, um, because that's the nature that the Son gave them, because that's who he is. Father, I pray that you'll find the people that are obedient and submissive and joyful, Father, as we approach your word, um, because it's yours, Father. Not because it's eloquent, not because it's um, higher than academically or intellectually or, or just more majestic than any other writing, Father, simply because it's yours. Um, even those simple commands, Lord, that um, are hard to understand, um, and, and some days we hate, Father. May we love them this morning as we come to the text, Father. May the text just pierce our hearts and our souls, Father, for the glory of Christ and change us and conform us and transform us into the very um, image of God in some fashion, Lord. And we need that. God, I need that as, as I approach your word and read the text and seemingly the one who's preaching to the people, Father. May the Spirit of God just overwhelm my soul this morning, Father, as uh, we give a few moments to you, Father, out of your word. Um, will the word of God, Father, speak to us? We beg it, Father. We're reminded of your prayer that you taught your disciples. Oh, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we pray that this morning, that our Father in heaven would accomplish a mighty work, that his will would be done here, that we would be conformed to that, that this place would be holy, that it would be sanctified and set apart for your use, Father. Um, we trust you to accomplish that this morning because we are feeble and fragile, feeble men with fragile spirits and, um, and think we are stronger than what we are and we're not. Um, but with you, we're reminded in the text that all things are possible. Just God give us the faith to believe it this morning. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name because we know that any other name is insufficient. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be, deceived. You can be seated. I pray that you've read Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, then you are lacking this morning. Um, outside the Bible, it's probably my favorite book to glean from. Not that it's inspired or infallible or at any point on level with Scripture, but God has used it throughout the uh, centuries since, and even in my own life, just to, to bless me. So I was studying this week and reminded of that great tale by John Bunyan, it's a story of a man by the name of Christian. He's on a journey from the city of destruction to the, what he returns the celestial city. It's somewhat of an allegory um, and very metaphorical of the way Bunyan, as he sits there in jail for preaching the gospel, um, records this great story to somewhat parallel to the Christian life, to be a walking illustration for us before our eyes to teach us something about what the Bible uh, sums up as the Christian life. Christian's on a journey from the city of destruction to the, to the celestial city. It's a, it's a journey that he must leave his family to go on, but he meets many people on the way. Many good men, many evil men, uh, many great monsters, but some, as I said, faithful, but finite men. One of these men's names was Hopeful. Christian and Hopeful are walking on their journey and come across a fence. And yeah, It says in the, in the, in the book... Um, you read this. Now the way from the river was rough and their feet tender by reason of their travels. So the souls of the pilgrims were much discouraged because of the way. Speaking of the narrow way. 
Wherefore, still as they went on, they wished for a better way. Now a little before them, there was on the left hand of the road a meadow and a stile to go over it, into it. And that meadow was called Bypath Meadow. Then said Christian to his fellow, If, if the meadow lieth along by the, our wayside, let us go over it. And then he went to the stile to see, and behold, a path along by the way. And on the other side of the fence is according to, to my wish, said Christian, here is the easiest going way. Come, good hopeful, let us go over. Hopeful replies, but how? If this path should lead us out of the way. Hopeful with some reservation. Um, hopeful gives some reservation to Christian, but they go anyway. He submits to his friend. All of a sudden, as the journey gets darker and darker and they get sleepier and sleepier, they fall by the wayside and fall asleep. They're awakened by a giant. The giant's name is Despair. He seizes them and drags them off only to be locked in a place that Bunyan writes, he calls it Doubting Castle. It's there that they're filled with fear. It's there that they're filled with anxiety. It's there that they're filled with doubt. The giant's wife tells him that he should be Christian and hopeful. So after he rails on them for a little while, that's exactly what he does, and he beats them to where they're barely left alive. They still live. She counsels him then, the giant, to do away with them. The giant walks in and tells them both, it would be better if you took your own life than to live like this. I brought for you a hangman's noose some poison and a knife. You know what they do? They consider it in the story. They talk about it. It says, then, then did the prisoners consult between themselves whether it was best to take his counsel or no. And in John, in John Bunyan's story, what a picture of the doubting believer. What a picture of the despair that seems to engulf the faithless Christian. What a picture of being in the dungeon called doubt. Such that despair drags you in and it consumes you. John Flavel is a great, that great Puritan once said, quote, There are many things that afflict the people of God from without. But all of these outward troubles are nothing compared to the troubles that come from within. There are many inward troubles that make us groan, but none more than this. The doubt that they find in their own hearts. End quote. Doubting is a very significant reality for every believer. I think it's something that all Christians throughout history, throughout the world today, and in the future will continue to bear with until our Lord returns. You know, and I say that, and you sit back, and I say that to myself, and it's easy for us to shake our heads and nod, but how often do we really recognize that reality and actually talk to each other about it? I'm convinced that it's a universal Christian reality at one time or another. It may not be frequent, and it may be a foe, that is not quite as formidable in your life, but in many it is. While it's vanquished quickly on many days, some days many Christians are carried off to Doubting Castle, where they'll spend a good amount of their time in despair, being beat with a pulp, and even questioning the reality of their faith. Faith is an intriguing thing. Something so amazing that when present, even in the smallest amount, it has the ability to move mountains, but if not cultivated, the following day can be so fragile that it folds under the faintest of weather. One day it's like a tree planted by the water, and the next day it's like a, 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 a tumbleweed floating across the scene, carried away by every wind of doctrine and by any element. 
One day it's like iron or brass in which you can firmly set your feet upon and can take the storm and the weather and will not be moved. And the next day, it's like you're standing on a thin sheet of ice. And at any moment it could break. Even the, most, even the strongest, most mature faith, I'm convinced, can be troubled by confusion, by assaulted by doubts and stymied with questions. And I believe that's what we're dealing with here in the passage. And we find a man who's keenly aware of the smallness of his faith. The Lord Jesus Christ, through the interaction with him, produces in him the perfect prayer for an imperfect faith. Thus we come to the text. Verse number 14, you may remember again if you've not been with us, we just came down off of the Mount of Transfiguration with our Lord. Uh, With Jesus, Peter, James, and John, Jesus pulls back the veil and gives them a glory um, that is incomparable. Um, At the same time, He preaches to them a message of John the Baptist Himself and inevitably them of suffering and of persecution and of glory that is to come. The suffering must first precede that. So they're coming down off the mountain and what do they see? Well, the text says in verse 14 that they see a great multitude says, when he came down to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and the scribes disputing with them. Jesus, Peter, James, and John come down and the other nine are there and there's a multitude. Among the multitude um, are a group of, of scribes. What are they doing? The text says that they're disputing with them. Between who? The scribes and the, and the other nine, the disciples. At least those nine, maybe even more. Verse 15 tells us that immediately they see him and all are amazed. They run to Him and they greet Him. And Jesus asks them a a simple question at that time. And and it's amazing that they're greatly amazed. There's nothing inherently in the text that would argue why they should be amazed other than it's just Jesus. Some argue that Jesus and the disciples come down and there's a glow uh, reminiscent of Moses coming down off the mount after meeting with our Lord, but we don't really know that. But for some reason, they see Christ and they are just astonished. Literally, you just can't uh, emphasize that Um, word enough that the people are just greatly amazed so they run to him and they greet him and Jesus um, immediately asks them a question it's like walking in on the kids almost right they're happy to see you but you can tell that something's been going on that's not quite appropriate so he asks them what's happening because it's abundantly clear that they're disputing something so he asks them the question what are you discussing with them one in the crowd pipes up um, on the question as he's eager to, he says, quote, Teacher, I brought you my son. Apparently a man came looking for Christ. No doubt he's heard of Christ and what he's capable of. Maybe that's what the astonishment uh, comes from. So, so he searches Christ out. The man comes um, uh, to the story. And, and the story goes that he comes and he tries to find Christ, but Christ is nowhere to be found. Christ is up on the mountain in the transfiguration. So what does he do? He does what he thinks is the next best thing. And he runs to his disciples. About what? About his son. There's a foreign spirit inside the boy. Verse 17 says, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit and wherever wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth. It gnashes his uh, teeth and he becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. The man asked the disciples to cast the demon out. I mean, they should be able to do that, right? After all, in Mark chapter 6, we have recorded that there was that they did that very thing with the authority of Christ. Mark chapter 6 and verse 7 says, He called the twelve to Himself and He began to send them out two by two and He gave them power over unclean spirits. 
So they went out and they preached that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed them with, with oil and those who were sick and needed to be healed. You can imagine in some way, maybe, with a sanctified imagination, you put yourself into the text and you think that the disciples are there. They've seen the, 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 um, the, the scribes, the multitude around, have seen the works of Christ. At least they've heard of the works of Christ. And maybe these disciples had experienced the authority of the miraculous. And this fellow brings his son and they may think kind of arrogantly, you know, we've got this. The exorcism begins. Yet to their peril, it's almost like Elijah on the mount in reverse. Instead of fire falling and the priest being put to open shame at the power of God, the disciples are the ones calling... The disciples are the ones calling down the fire. And all you hear at that moment is just the sound of crickets. And the scribes with their arms folded, their snide remarks and their smirked faces. Um, but let's not lose what seems to be the primary intention of the passage. It, it appears that the focus is not so much on the scribes and the crowd, um, except that they are an example of a faithless generation. Verse number 19, he answers and says that very thing, O unbelieving generation, how, shall I, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? How long shall I bear up with you? Bring him to me. The reaction is a, a half of a quote from Psalm 95, verse 10, where he refers to God's patient endurance of the faithlessness of the Israelite generation. As they were wondering in the days of old, a generation which finally came under God's judgment. And in some sense, the nation of Israel here will come under the judgment of God eventually as they reject our Lord. He looks around and he finds no faith in the people. Why does Jesus do that? He, he turns to rebuke them, you know, and it's hard. And you wonder if that's really necessary, you know. Right? Like as, as a natural person, most people would argue with the Lord Jesus that wasn't quite the way to do that, you know. He looks at them and he, and he, and he somewhat, this, this sigh of discontent and frustration, and he says, how long will I, should I bear up with you? How long should I be patient? Why? Because Jesus expected more. At least in His disciples. It's hard to identify exactly who He's speaking of, but I think it's everyone. I think His disciples are included. The nation is there. He expected um, them to be able to accomplish something. Um, and He's dismayed. He's expressing a grievous disappointment with them. The intention, though, of the story is really to highlight that in contrast to the reaction and um, relationship between the Father and Christ. The Father comes and asks for healing for His Son. And I think it's... Um, not exaggerated to say it's a desperate and hopeless case. Imagine with me for a moment that you read it and read it like a father. Don't add anything to the text. I'm not saying put anything there that's not there, but put yourself in the text. Teacher, I brought you my son. He can't talk. He can't hear. There's a spirit inside him that's not him, I know, because I know him. Wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and he becomes rigid. Verse 24, Jesus calmly asks the Father. It's kind of a strange question if, you, if, if I was reading the text. Um, how long has it been going on? Um, the boy is there seizing himself and Jesus looks at him and says, you know, as a, like a physician diagnosing the problem. Like how long has this been an issue? 
And he goes on to describe that it's been an issue for some time since he was a small child, probably for years. He continues to tell of the nature of the demons. It's been, he says, it's, it's been the demons' intent to destroy the, destroy the boy since he was a child. He throws him into the fire. He throws him into the water, possibly to drown him. Cast him to the ground. Possibly breaks his bones. He's skinned in areas. This is the nature of demons. He's saying, in essence, I spoke to your disciples and they, that they should cast out the demon. I came because I don't know what else to do. Lord, I came to you because I don't know what else, where else to go. It's made him deaf and mute. I can't even tell you, tell him how much I love him anymore. I can't tell him how much I care about him. He sees us all the time. It's like he's there, but he's not. His body just becomes rigid, and I—I I, I mean, I, I try to hold him, but it's not really holding him. <laughs> you know, not like a father should hold his son, not with tender care and love, just simply to keep him from hurting himself. But at the same time, he hurts me. His teeth are grinding; it are gnashing. You can hear it visibly. It looks like there's so much anguish on his face. There's so much pain. He foams at the mouth. I know the demon is there. He tries to kill him. If he's near a body of water, the demon tries to throw him in it. If he's near a fire, the demon tries to cast him down. It's exhausting. I have to stay with him all the time. He like, I can't leave him alone. The demon will destroy him. That's the picture. He, like any other father, would despair over his son. He wanted him healed. He wanted him healthy. He wanted his son. In some sense, he seems like he believes Jesus can do it. With a spark of faith, he moves towards Christ in the text, although he can't find him. He finds his disciples instead. The text says they could not. It literally could be rendered, they were not strong enough. They were not mighty enough. They had no strength to do what my son needed. So Jesus says, bring him to, him, to me. Verse number 20, they, they bring the boy to him and when, they, and when he saw him, so the boy is brought to Jesus and the demon sees Jesus and the demon reacts. Very interesting. The text literally says that the spirit convulsed him. I think in verse number 20 when it says that when he saw him, um, uh, Christians and people have written on this text and preached it um, seem, to, seem to believe that the grammatical structure is arguing that the demon saw Christ. That when they brought him to him and when he saw him, when the demon, the spirit saw Christ, immediately the spirit convulsed him. Literally, it could be rendered, he tore his body back and forth. He's thrown violently to the ground. His body is out of the control. Why? Someone may ask. Like, who knows, really? Who knows why the demon takes one last swing at the boy? Maybe he thinks he can finish him off. After all, that's been the entire intent all along to destroy this young man. That's his goal. It could simply be an incitation of fear and trembling in the presence of God, though. Oftentimes throughout the text, demons don't arrive until Jesus shows up. They see the, 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 the incarnate Son of God, one whom no doubt they, they, they knew in eternity past. And whenever He comes and when He steps on the scene, demons tremble in fear. That could be it. That could be it. Maybe He sees the Father. And He's known the Father. And He knows the nature of the Father. The father of the boy, that is. And he knows how tired he is and he knows how exhausting he, exhausted he is. Maybe he desires one last swing at his faith. I don't know. But if that's not his intention, I believe that that's probably very likely to have happened. In the presence of Jesus, 
Um, one more time, the demon just goes to town on this young boy. Jesus asks, how long has it been going on? What? Um, and you can imagine just the, the sinking of the heart at that moment in the, in the man. You know, here we go again. This is what happens, Lord. This is my boy. Um, you can imagine him losing hope. You can see it in the text. You can see it in his eyes. He sits before his disciples. They can't do anything now. He's before Jesus. And Jesus asks a, what he probably thinks is a silly question. And there he is on the ground. Just writhing away. The man responds, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It's an interesting move by the man. He questions Jesus' compassion. He doesn't actually say, Lord, he says something like, if you're able, have compassion. As if it was something that Christ needed to do that he wasn't doing in the moment with that question. It's not a question of Christ's presence, but his ability. He's not asking, are you, not? He's not asking, are you moved, but can you move? Clearly you're not. You're not you, clearly you're standing here and we're, you're diagnosing the problem. You're like everybody else I've, I've ever met. There's a question of ability, not necessarily a present state. Can you do this? Is what he's asking. Can you feel? Can you be moved on the inside? Because it's not apparent that you are now. Can you help us? Can you be moved on the inside, he asks the Lord, such that it provokes you to help and to aid? Can you be compassed on the inside and moved in your gut such that, that you help my boy? He's seeking aid and he doesn't seem to know whether or not initially Jesus can do it. Maybe he's heard about it. Maybe he's seen some work um, that Jesus has done running around the village, but he's not fully convinced yet. Maybe, maybe at one time he did believe. That's why he came. He sought him out. But through the lack of faith and the lack of movement and the lack of, of, of accomplishment, he, his faith still seems to dwindle. He questions the activity of God. It could be that his faith has been dashed to the ground after repeated failure and repeated failure and he stands before Jesus and, and Jesus doesn't seem to be somewhat moved by his circumstances. And he asks Jesus, could you even, can you even be moved? Is this who you are? You know? Jesus responds in verse 23 with this, and I think it's a stinging rebuke. Um, I think he, he questions the man's faith because the man questions his nature. He says, in essence, can you believe? You know, Jesus takes the formula of the man and rehearses it back to him. The man says, Jesus, can you help? Jesus responds, can you believe? I think that's the nature of the text. I think that's the tenor of the, of the, of the, of the account. I think what he's getting at is that there's not a problem with, uh, with Jesus' ability in this account. It's a problem with the man's faith. He says, if you're able, Jesus in essence is saying, if you believe, I'm able. My power is not under consideration or question here. It's not a problem of ability. It's an issue of faith. And, and it's evident because this man is still, this young boy is still in the state that he's in. It's, we're in the midst of a faithless generation. <clears throat> grace is there, grace is here, grace is sufficient. The means by which that grace is ministered out, though, is by faith, is what he's saying. In some sense, he looks back at the man and he says, do you believe? Because if you believe, then all things are possible. With those who have faith that this is a small thing in the eyes and the hands of the mighty God, that the reason that he, we're, we're having this 
dispute right now and the reason that, that, that you know, there, there's snides and snickers at the disciples is because they lack in an area and that area is faith. It, it has nothing to do with, with the ability or the nature of God. Do you believe? Because if you believe, all things are possible is what he says. The reason it hasn't happened is because you're a faithless generation. Verse 24, the boy's father cries out, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Talk about honesty. He says, Lord, I have confidence. Help my despair. Lord, I have faith. Help my doubt. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And you wonder how belief and faith can, can be present with unbelief and doubt. You know, it's almost as if uh, when faith comes, there's an element that it's, it's universal because, because doubt is, is somewhat um, embedded in it. You know, the, the, the very fact and presence of faith, um, it, it's almost as if you, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a level of which belief in, the, in a Christian life that lives in some sense, it, it demands overcoming doubt. That's the essence of faith, right? You've got to believe something. So there's reason to doubt. The, 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 the internal struggle is there. And at the end of the day, you, you abandon that struggle and you abandon self to, to cling to Christ. Even in spite of all the reason and all the logic and all the, the circumstances and all the situations, you run to Christ. Like that's faith, isn't it? Jesus commands... After that, verse number 25, when Jesus saw the people coming, came running together, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of Him and enter Him no more. And we'll get to the... I think the faith is there now. I think the honesty... I think, I think this man has changed. And we'll make that in the application to come. I think in the desperation there, He overcomes something by God's grace um, to believe and to cling to Christ. Thus... The boy is healed because he argues that previous, the reason that it wasn't is because the faith wasn't there. He's not going to dispute his own argument and say that the reason that it hasn't happened is because faith is not there. Thus, then he's going to do it on the grounds other than faith. Something happened in the man. Apart from every reason not to believe, something happened in the man. Something is born in him. In honesty and in despair. At Christ's conversation and Christ's rebuke and Christ's um, instruction, the man yields and his boy is saved. God does the unthinkable. The thing that no man has ever been able to do, the thing that no physician was able to accomplish, the thing that no disciple was ever to call down fire on, God does. Because all things are possible with Him. Jesus walks over, He picks the boy up, uh, raises him up in heroes, it says. So then the Spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many thought he was dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. There's a sense in which I also believe that this is a picture of what we just talked about the last two weeks, the death and resurrection I mean, this account. is so amazing. It's almost as if Mark, by the Spirit of God, records it that way on purpose. That he arose him and he was resurrected. You may have a translation that says he was resurrected. The last account he's teaching that the resurrection and the restoration and the need of suffering and his death, his decease, his departure, his exodus. And here you see the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful pictures of that. 
Jesus raising a boy enslaved and controlled by another spirit in whom, given by Himself, the, the, the demon would destroy Him. And Jesus saves him by faith. Raises him from the dead in essence. He who was dead is now alive. Verse 28, when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately. And you wonder what their affect is. You wonder what is going through their mind. You wonder if they're glorying in the majesty of Christ. You wonder if they have heard the sermon at all. Basically because he told them why they couldn't cast him out. They asked that question, why couldn't we do it, Lord? Why couldn't we do it? So he says to them, this, this kind can only come out by prayer and by, by fasting. The prayer and fasting, I would argue, is, a, is in essence an act of faith. It's still a faith issue. It's still a problem. He didn't come out. You need prayer because you need me. I wasn't there. I would have been had you prayed. Maybe not in a physical expression, but in the power of the Spirit of God. I was on the mountain, but that doesn't limit me. You know? I could have been there. I could have fellowshiped with you. But you didn't rely on me, and it's evident by the way that you approached the young man. It's evident that you didn't rely upon me because the fruit of that was, was not there. And that's the story. That's it. It's quick. Complete, terrible, and beautiful. Terrible as it reminds us as a faithless generation. And beautiful as it reminds us of those who come to Christ by faith. What can be accomplished, the unthinkable, the incapable. A man by the name of Os Guinness wrote a book one time. And he writes these words related to doubt. He says, I believe in doubt. The ultimate enemy of faith, though, isn't doubt. It's unbelief. I know it's somewhat of a fine distinction, but I think it's necessary to make. He goes on to say, to believe is to be one of one mind in accepting something as true. To disbelieve is to be of one mind in rejecting it. To doubt is to waver somewhere between the two. Now, because faith is crucial, doubt is serious. But because doubt is not unbelief, it is not, un, it is not terminal, he says. But there's a real serious element about doubt as it comes to faith sometimes. And we could argue and go through the number of reasons that doubt exists in the believer. I think one reason is because faith exists. And to believe something means you have to overcome something that you already believe. You have to abandon something. There has to be somewhat of an element of doubt or unbelief for you even to approach faith. There must be something you leave to, to something you cling to. But could also come assaults from the enemy. This is the, the nature of the devil we've seen. It could be because of sin in your life. The Christian departs from the narrow way because he desires to go up another, an easier route. You should be sure, Christian, that when you take the broad road another way, the way that is not prescribed by Christ, doubts will assail. 
When we neglect the Word, when we neglect prayer, when we neglect worship, when we neglect the people of God, and when we embrace those things which are directly contrary to the Word of God, um, no, re- no, no wonder you doubt. We doubt because of the fragile nature of man. We're on a roller coaster on many days, up one day, down the next. We doubt sometimes because of the Lord's testing. We doubt. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great man of God in days past, says faith is keeping your heel on doubt sometimes. That's faith. It's battling with doubt, he says. He uses an illustration of a painting that he saw of Michael the archangel who had his heel on the head of doubt. And that's not infallible, that's not scriptural, but that's the, the image that he gives of the Christian, the faithful man, the faithful woman. And when doubt is present, she, or he puts their heel upon it and keeps it at bay. That's part of the battle of the Christian life. Sometimes doubt is a part of our faith and we must abandon it and thus see Christ work. There's a great danger in doubt. Doubt is an enemy. It seems from, and I get that from the text. You know, what I don't want to do is make doubt um, something that's normal for the Christian life. Thus, we just uh, sit around and pat each other on the back and say, it's okay. It's not. It seems that for a moment in the text that Jesus is more concerned about unbelief than He is the demon. Did you catch that? Unbelief had been institutionalized in the nation of Israel. It had infected the um, the hearts of everyone who followed their lead. They were on the broad road out of all the great problems in the area. uh, And you can name more than just a few, including the demon possession here. Unbelief seems to be the worst. It was the most concerning to our Lord. Uh, think about it. Like the, 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 the demon is on the ground, is ravaging this boy, and Jesus uh, takes a moment while it's going on to rebuke the nation, to rebuke the people, to rebuke the disciples. He didn't give priority to the boy. He didn't give priority to the demon. He gave priority to the greater evil and wicked of the day, and that was unbelief. Unbelief is extremely wicked. To distrust the Word of God or to doubt the power of Christ is not some small matter. It's not trivial. Doubt is not a badge of honor because you're being authentic. Unbelief is the seedbed of wickedness from which every other trespass follows. It's not a secondary issue. And that may be the reason He deals with the crowd before dealing with the demon-possessed boy. As horrific as demon possession is, it's not as evil as unbelief. Spurgeon says, quote, Too many in the church of God regard unbelief as a calamity that demands sympathy rather than a fault that demands censure. Doubts are among the worst enemy of your souls. Do not entertain them. Do not treat them, he says, as they were poor, forlorn travelers to be hospitably entertained, but they are rogues and vagabonds to be chased from your door. Fight them, slay them, and pray to God to help you kill them and bury them and not to leave a bone or a piece of a bone above, of doubt above the ground. He goes on to say, doubting and belief are to be abhorred and to be confessed with tears and sins before God. We need pardon for doubting as much as for blasphemy. We ought no more to excuse doubting than we do lying because doubting slanders God and makes Him a liar. End quote. Doubt is extremely dangerous. And if left unchecked, Satan continues to chip away at the faith of an individual and the soul is left unchecked and malnourished from a lack of repentance. Gospel, the Word, prayer, and worship, it could culminate in unbelief. 
and an outright rejection of Christ. Thus, the writer of Hebrews tells us, as was read in Sunday school this morning, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Doubt is not your friend. It's not a badge of honor. It's not um, something that you can just sit around and sympathize with one another because we know what you're going through. It's an enemy, and the devil's design for doubt is just as the demon and the boy. It's to destroy you. Thus you wrestle with it. Thus you fight it. Thus you take up arms with the Word of God and you believe God instead of believing the world and everything else around it, the circumstances. And that's what this man did. This man is unique in the text because even outside the disciples, he is so alarmed and so grieved and so desperate and so dismayed at his own unbelief that he comes to Christ. This alarm is actually his faith speaking out against unbelief. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. What an amazing scene. Verse 24, the man after a scathing rebuke looks to Christ shattered in tears in verse 24. He says, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The Lord looks at him and says, you don't believe. It's not me. The power's there. It's not an ability. I'm here. You just don't see me. You don't see me as I am. Not really. Otherwise you wouldn't question my compassion. Otherwise you wouldn't question my ability to help. That's a rebuke. He says, if you can believe all things are possible to him, immediately the text says the father of the child cried and said with tears, Lord, He's pleading. He's on the brink of utter despair. He knows that if Jesus does not do something, then nothing will be done. The boy, his boy will be gone. Jesus in return challenges the reality and strength of his faith. And this isn't news to the man. He knows his faith is not what it ought to be. And he even desires to earnestly trust Jesus. He just he doesn't really know how. He needs a miracle. Thus he says, Lord, 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 now the foundation of overcoming doubt or the foundation of assurance is knowing with certainty um, leaning and leaning on God. It's the Lord. There's so much packed in that term, Lord. Now, assurance is not gained. And overcoming doubt is not gained by looking inward at my own heart or outward at my own hands and my works. The man doesn't find anything out there that helps him. The man doesn't find anything in here that helps him. He's looked out there and he's looked in here and he can't find hope. And you're not going to find hope out there and you're not going to find hope in here either. I'm not going to find hope that I'm good enough or righteous enough to rest easy with assurance. And you're not going to find out there a man that's strong enough, that's loving enough, and that's caring enough, that's intelligent enough, that's academic enough to take you out of your unbelief into belief. A true assurance in this text, and this is the ultimate, uh, and this is as simple as it can get, and I understand that. It's nothing profound. It's a true assurance in this text is found only in Christ. That Christ is the object of our faith. That's the only sure ground for assurance is looking to Christ. You want to overcome doubt and the enemy is doubt, it must find its death in Christ. 
Faith in Christ is the only instrument of our assurance and is the only weapon by which we war against the elements. Spurgeon says of this man, he says, he does not say, Lord, I believe, help thou my child. Nor does he say, Lord, I believe, now cast out the devil out of my boy. He perceives that his own unbelief is harder to overcome than the devil and the demon. And to heal him of his spiritual disease is a more needful work than even to heal the child of a sad malady under which he's labored. That the quality of our faith is not nearly as important as the object of our faith. And that is so important for you to remember. It's not so much a question of how strong is your faith this morning. But what is your faith in? Because you can have a strong faith in something that will never deliver, while at the same time you can have faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed in the right object and it moves mountains. That this man was trusting Christ and Christ alone for everything. As imperfect of a faith as it was, it was in the appropriate object. Thus, the smallest amount of God's glory that falls upon this man is enough to bring him into union with Him. And to accomplish not only the healing of the boy, but also the healing of his soul. And this is imperative. This is so important. Because so many Christians become so obsessed with the imperfections of their own faith, and their own shortcomings, and their own disobedience, that they take their eyes off of Christ. No wonder they don't know whether they're saved or not. A person like that can't know. They are the object of their faith, and maybe you've been there as well. You know? It's like you want more faith, so you try to get more faith. And your faith is in faith. And you try to figure out, Lord, and you even pray to Him, Lord, I want to believe more, just I don't know how to believe. So you look to believe more. You know? Like you try to muster it up in yourself, and you lie there on your bed at night, or you're walking throughout the day, or you're reading the text of Scripture, things are falling apart all around you, you can't control the circumstances, and you're wondering, God, where are you at? I know you're there, and I want to believe, but I don't know how to believe. Lord, teach me, Lord, teach me how to believe. And we pursue our faith by pursuing faith. And that's not, that's, not, that's not the ground of assurance. And that's not the death of doubt. That faith is born in Christ. You don't look to yourself. You don't look inside. And you don't try to find some measure of, 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 of godly attributes and this or that. You know, you don't try to find some work out here that can give you some assurance because that is on rough and, 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 and difficult ground. And it's a shaky sand. And if that's where you're looking, there will be no doubt in my mind days of extreme doubt. Because those things change and because you change and that, that faith is, is, is rooted and grounded not in you and not in even what He's doing in you inherently or not out there, it's in Christ and in Christ alone. That we are ever changing and thus so is our faith. Thus our faith must be resting in some object that is unchanging so that, and unwavering so that we will not doubt that this man is poorly focused. Even though by self-admission his faith is imperfect, lacking and even failing at the moment, he lays hold of the only proper object of faith. And that is Christ. And Christ alone. His faith is born not in wanting to believe. His faith is born in believing in Christ. As imperfect and as shallow as it was, it was enough because Christ is sufficient, even in His smallest of portions. That when glory is meted out, even whenever Moses is behind the rock, He doesn't get Him in all of His, all of his, his weight and ultimate substance and glory. But He gets 
some to where it changes Him. And that's us. We get all of Him, but what is meted out is a small portion. And even the smallest of faith, the faith of a child, this faith of the, the, the grain of a mustard seed in Christ is more than enough to move mountains and to save souls and to change lives and to transform nations and families and communities. That His faith, though imperfect, is actually impressive. That the guy was paying attention to Christ's his teaching. And responding to the truth even while his son is in a demonic fit. Right? It would have been easy to tune out to Christ's teaching and give attention to the son. It would have been easy to take his eyes off of Christ and place them upon the terrors of sin, but he doesn't. He focuses. His boy is seizing on the ground and he hears the voice of God such that it pierces his heart and his soul. And he finally looks at Christ and not at the boy, not at the circumstances, not at the demons, not at the spirit, not at himself, not at the crowd, not at the disciples. He's there with Christ and he's Christ alone. They weren't going to save him. He was managing the status quo and healing. If it was to occur and a miracle was to take place, then Jesus would have to take front and center. He would have to tune out everything that the world says and everything that he knows um, could have happened and have happened and, and will or will not happen according to his own logic and reason. And he must believe Christ. He must listen to Christ. You know, sometimes we stare at the problem so long and never look to Christ. And I've been doing that hard and long. And you try to stare at it another way. And you get up on a pulpit and you look down at it. You pick it up and you look underneath. And you get the guy next to you. Even another faithful Christian. Like, will you look at this? You know? And we get locked in. Wondering where God's at. Looking in there. Looking in here. Trying to figure out, where's my faith? All the time you need to stare at Christ. Look to Him. His problem was doubt. It's the erosion of faith. It's clear in Christ's response. Like, if you can believe, it's there. Stern rebuke, but exactly what he needed. That mountains will be moved, boys will be saved, demons will be wrought ineffective. You know, um, if you will believe, not in them. Forget about what the disciples did. Forget about the fact that he's been like this all of his life. Forget about every single time that pops into your mind of him writhing and wringing and gnashing of teeth and being rigid and this and that. Forget about all that and look at me. That's the essence of faith. You have every good reason to look at your family, every good reason to look at the circumstances, every good reason to look at the turmoil and the distress and the havoc and this and that. And, and, and Christ this morning um, commands you to look at Him. I believe He got the rebuke. I believe He listened. And I believe that's why He responds in tears. I believe that's why His response is so authentic. And His confession of faith involves a confession of unbelief. I believe is a triumphant statement that totally defies a life of, of unbelief. And he doesn't care. He doesn't care who hears him. In the midst of the crowd, who's in no doubt snickering and chiding at Christ and his disciples because they've been, they've been null and void for the, for, the, for the entire time. They've been able to do nothing. They're not like Elijah pulling down uh, fire from heaven. They're, they're, they're standing there with their hands looking like fools beside them because they can't accomplish it. And this man believes in spite of all of that. In spite of a world of doubt and a world of unbelief and a faithless generation, this man looks to Christ and Christ alone. 
doesn't see the boy. He doesn't see circumstances. He looks to Christ. This is the work of God in man's life. He looks to Christ. Christ reveals Himself to him. John Flavel is a great Puritan as well. He says, quote, There is enough help in Christ to help your unbelief. The Lord says, This poor man helped my unbelief. Jesus is an excellent physician and knows how to relive and cure you, or how to re-enliven and cure you. Go to Him, He says. Groan out your complaint and tell Him that your heart is pained and troubled and, and diseased and you will find Him a faithful, a skillful, and a merciful Savior. And that this faith isn't, as we said, it isn't a great faith. It isn't a, 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 a faith that, 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 that seems all that wonderful. It, it's, it's, it's simply a, a man who just falls on his face and just... It's the most elementary of faiths. True faith is always aware of how small and inadequate it is. One writer writes, he says, the father becomes a believer not because he amasses some sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has. When he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus, quote, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. He goes on to say the risk of faith is more costly to the father than bringing his son to Jesus. For he can talk about him, his son, but he must cry out for faith. True faith takes no confidence in itself, nor does it judge Jesus by the weakness of his followers. It looks to the more powerful one who stands in the place of God, whose authoritative word restores life from chaos. True faith is unconditional openness to God, a decision in the face of all to the contrary, that Jesus is able, end quote. That authentic faith never takes, well, it never takes a deliberate stand against truth. It doesn't. As sometimes... Most people are ushered into the kingdom with the faith, the grain of a mustard seed. It's not a faith that demands a grand theological statement of orthodoxy. You don't have to be a Reformed Baptist to be a part of this church. You know? It doesn't have to ascribe to the 1689, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Articles, the Five Solas, or the Doctrines of Grace, as wonderful and glorious as I think all those things are this morning. You simply need to look to Christ. While there may be ignorance of much things, this doesn't mean or constitute unbelief. And I believe that those things represent, and while I believe that those things represent Christian thought as taught in the Bible, and that when mature, some will and most should, I think, come to grips with most of that, but it's not required to be born in the family of God. You just need to look to Christ. Christians are matured into other things, but they first must be Christians. They must first come with just a a child like faith. And the initial stage of Christianity is faith in Christ's work and repentance of sin, and that's it. And if faith and repentance is birthed into a man's soul, the work is laid for growth his entirety of life. But the vitality of saving faith is not manifest in a robust theological statement or in a house full of works. It's in Christ and in Christ alone. I love uh, just one chapter more, Mark chapter 10 and verse 15. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So many people today are trying to bust through the gates as theologians and academics and intellectuals and this or that, and the kingdom is going to be filled with babies, the children, you know, and people in the backwoods and people in, 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 in nowhere, Africa and, and Asia and other places where they're just trying to scrape, you know, a few dollars to get one Bible among 200. You know, they have very little knowledge of a lot of the things that we fight and bicker and divide over. And they will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
They will because on so little they believe so much. And on so much that we have, we believe so little. You know? That this morning doubt is buried and dead and gone only, not in faith and not in um, uh, these things that we hold high and esteem greatly necessarily, but in Christ and in Christ uh, alone. Christian and hopeful were sitting there in Doubting Castle. And the giant's wife finally tells them, you need to go kill them. They won't kill themselves. They, they suffer. They're willing to suffer persecution, he says, she says, in not so many words. They won't kill themselves, she tells them. You do it. Um, and he, just like his kindred Ahab, listens to Jezebel and goes down to kill him. About the same time in the story, Hopeful looks up over and says, you know, Christian, if only we had a key. Bright idea, right? Christian says, wait a minute. I have a key. And it's called promise. And he went over to the keyhole with the promise given to him by the evangelist and stuck it out in the lock and opened the door of Downing Castle. And there was giant despair in despair. Because he doesn't do that well under the light of day. So he went into a fit and the key of promise in their hand, they ran back to the narrow way. You know? And that today you have great impression promises. You might lie in the dungeon of despair or the, the into doubting castle and beating yourself alive and wondering whether I should go on. If you're a Christian this morning, I beg you to take out the key. Promise Christ is there. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, and that if you're doubting, He is the death of doubt. It's born in faith in Him. The recurrent theme in this passage is the inadequacy of disciples in the ministry. One writer says, he says, service and fellowship with Christ is characterized by constant awareness of the inadequacy of the servant. As this story illustrates, Jesus calls the disciples to task beyond their abilities. And, that fact, and the fact that that task surpassed their abilities is evidence that Christ's ministry is his, not theirs. The inadequacy of disciples is not their fault. Nor should it have effect of impairing either their faith or fellowship with Christ. Rather, inadequacy drives the disciples to prayer, which is God's gift to them, and another form of fellowship with Jesus as their Lord. And I end quote, and um, this passage is a balm and a medicine to my soul. In days where you feel inadequate, in days where you feel insufficient, you're reminded that you are not supposed to be sufficient. You are not supposed to be adequate. You are not supposed to be grand. You are not supposed to be glorious. You are supposed to be Christ's. And that inadequacy is the perfect requisite of being a Christian. As you cast yourself at the feet of Christ and simply believe on Him. Do you despair this morning? Are you in a dungeon of your own soul? Are you locked up? Everywhere you look around, people are telling you, cheer up. But you can't. Because you're not in a cage out there, you're in a cage in here. 
It's a dark place. I beg you this morning to look to Christ. To find hope in Him. You say, well, you don't know about this. You don't know how long He's been demonized. It just happens over and over since He's a small child. The disciples couldn't do it. This couldn't fix it. That couldn't fix it. And you're thinking about that about everything, aren't you? I am. You try this and you try that and you do this and you do that. And maybe that's God just saying, son, you're insufficient. And that's fine. Look to me. Look to my work. Stop looking at your own hands and stop looking at your own heart because at the end of the day, if that's what you're looking at, you will not find faith because it's not there. Look me. And you look at the situation and you wonder, man, what a tragedy. But at the same time, you look at the situation and you think, man, that was the perfect storm to produce faith. Wasn't it? I'm sure that that man looked at the demon in a different way than he ever did before. You know? Because that's where he found Christ. And sometimes the storm is hard. And sometimes the um, circumstances are difficult. Sometimes you don't know where to go. You don't know how to look up. You don't know where to look left and look right. You look for hope and you look for help and you can't find it. And you just wonder how long, oh Lord. And I think in a few days, in a few months, in a few years, we'll look back and we'll thank God for it. Because that's where we found Him. And it wasn't that He wasn't there. He's been there all along. It's not a question of can He. It's a question of will He. Because it's a question of will you. Will you believe? He's here. He's here. Will you believe Him this morning for great things? Will you take out the promise and finally trust Him this morning? Let's pray. God, we need You. We love You. Father, out of all the great treasures and in all the world, the depths of the sea, the miles of universe, the stars, the sun, the moon, children, wives, animals, trees, mountains, stars, oceans, valleys, they do not compare to the worth of Christ. May we look to Him this morning. God, may we just see the glow on His face, the shining of His eyes, the treasures in His hands, the sword, Father, in His right hand, the throne that He sits upon, the beauty and the majesty of His holiness, and the love and the compassion that He had to become as one of us, to die a death that we should have died a thousand times over in hell. And apart from Him, we would. Father, if we're struggling with faith this morning, help us not to try to muster up more. Help us not, Father, to labor a ten-step method to, to have a stronger faith. Help us to run to Christ. 
Help us not to look inside of ourselves and look out in the world at our hands and our works. Help us not to focus in on the maladies and the destruction all around us, Lord, but help us to help us to look to Christ. May we say on this Lord's day that we set aside for Him that today, Father, I rested in Christ. That all the other circumstances of the world that have every ounce of difficulty, Father, and distraction and stress in my souls, it it melted in Christ today as I gazed upon Him. That He is our rest and that He is our refuge and that He is our hope and of all the promises that we have, He is our promise. And the promise of the Holy Spirit lies within us and help us, Father, to lean on Him and to look to Him this day. Father, I pray we worshiped You today because You are worthy. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive honor and glory and praise and dominion. And if we have not, Father, may we now, as You speak to us, may we listen and cry out to the only one who is able and sufficient. God, help us to embrace our inadequacies and our insufficiencies and come to You through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.